Okay, tonight let's uh, delve a little bit more into Shunyatar, into emptiness, and try and connect it. Let's make a start on connecting with ethics this evening as well. I suppose as a preface to that, I just want to say something that really almost starts off every retreat, which is about the precepts. And there's something constantly to come back to and to remind ourselves of. And some of you will have heard me speak about it before, but it's always good to go back to examining the precepts. But before then, I'm going to share a poem with you, which is, uh, I don't know if any of you have heard of him, it's a poet called Fernando Pessoa. He was writing, this poem was written in 1914. It reminds us about being here. Just, just being here without expectation. Okay. <laughs> okay, it's an, it's an untitled poem. It's like this. Beyond the bend in the road. They may, there may be a well, and there may be a castle, and there may be just more road. I don't know and I don't ask. As long as I'm on the road that's before the bend, I only look at the road before the bend, because the road before the bend is all I can see. It would do me no good to look anywhere else, or at what I can't see. Let's pay attention only to where we are, there's enough beauty in being here and not somewhere else. If there are people beyond the bend in the road, let them worry what's beyond the bend in the road. That for them is the road. If we're to arrive there, when we arrive there we'll know. For now we know only that we're not there. Here there's just the road before the bend, and before the bend there's the road without any bend. <laughs> There's another lovely line, I won't just read the poem to you, but there's another lovely line in there which I think actually is very useful for thinking about when you're going doing your walking meditation. He says, to think is to have eyes that are not very well. To think is to have eyes that are not very well. Okay, let's uh, go to the precepts and then I'll try and weave it into this tapestry of talking about yet again, because actually the main import of the teaching is to have an ethical impact. It's not meant for just merely intellectual titillation, you know, and unfortunately that's often what has happened in the history of Buddhist thought, is it's become very academic, it's become very scholastic, and eventually it was partly responsible for the decline of Buddhism in India, it became cut off from the practicalities. Yet the teaching itself is always immensely practical. And as I've said to you before about the Buddha's teaching himself in the Nikayas, there is nothing in the Nikayas which isn't practical. There's nothing which he teaches merely out of a sort of philosophical curiosity. Everything in there is to bring about the end of Dukkha. That is what it's aimed at. That's what its intention is. Now, there are precepts of training um, that 
we adhere to in Buddhist practice. If you're a, well, let's just talk about Theravadan traditions more for some of the other traditions. The Vinaya of the Theravadan tradition, you have 227 rules that you have to follow. I think we get away with it pretty easily with five, (laughs) (laughs) comparatively. Um, However, one could say that the Vinaya itself is a condensation, actually, of, of the five basic precepts extrapolated over all sorts of areas about not doing harm and not speaking falsely and not giving wrong impressions and things like this. So let's take the precepts. Um, Well, normally when I see them listed, unfortunately I always see them listed as uh, don't kill, don't steal, don't engage in sexual misconduct, don't lie, you know, and ultimately don't take drink and drugs. Um, And I think this is a vast travesty, actually, of what they're really intended for. Um, In the original, if you actually ever get the original Pali and the translation of the original Pali, it runs something like this. I undertake a rule of training to refrain from harming living beings. Now, obviously, it's far richer than saying just don't, you know, just, um, you know, the kind of very simplistic don't kill. It's much, much richer. It's much more uncertain, actually. There's a great deal of uncertainty in it, written into it. You know, what exactly constitutes doing harm? So what the precepts are actually set up for, really, are tools for ethical inquiry in our lives. As a kind of default mode, they can be taken as just thou shalt nots, but I don't think they do their job when they're used in that way. They are meant to instigate inquiry. Um, so when you take the first precept, undertake a rule of training to refrain from harming living beings, what you're doing is undertaking a rule of training to look at all relationships of harm that you're engaging in. And often as Buddhists we won't go out and deliberately kill anything, but we'll still engage in lots of harm um, with other beings. Yeah. Um, from the uncharitable word to the irritability to all the ways that we behave in in this world, unthinkingly, often. Um, so it's a, actually each of the precepts goes from the gross to the subtle. The gross is the most obvious, and those are the ones you find listed in the books. You know, don't kill. Yeah. I think when you begin to look at the subtlety of the precepts in the way that originally formulated. A, they are not thou shalt nots, because they're rules of training. They're training rules. They're not absolutes. They're meant to help to guide that inquiry that I talked about, this ethical inquiry. This part that's so important, it's the ground of all Buddhist practice, in the sense that it's the ground through which you then pass through the bhavana, samadhi type practices, hopefully into panya, with the bhavana, samadhi practices being the bridge to getting you there. Well, if you haven't got one side of the bank in place, the bridge is going nowhere. It's got no foundation whatsoever. So actually we might engage in lots and lots of meditation practice, but it doesn't necessarily impact on our ethics, particularly if there's unwise attention being placed there. Remember I made this distinction between wise attention and unwise attention that we can develop. 
So it's always extremely important to keep going back to the precepts. Often, uh, certainly in Guy House, you'll be reminded at the start of a retreat of all the precepts. And unfortunately, I still see them listed out as don't kill, don't steal, don't you know, do all this sort of stuff. Um, which is useful to a degree, but it doesn't really instigate the inquiry I think the Buddha intended um, to instigate by actually hearing them in their full form. uh, I undertake a rule of training to refrain from taking what is not offered. That's far more subtle than don't steal. Because we take an awful lot. That's why I always used to remind my students at university, don't take other people's words. Because that's a form of stealing too, in plagiarism. Um, So we again can be engaged in all sorts of forms of appropriation when something isn't being offered freely, isn't being given to us. Um, And we can think about this in, for example, just in ordinary life situations, in an office where you, I don't know, appropriate a pen or a paper clip or use the telephone inappropriately and things like this, all sorts of these things that we think don't matter. But remember the kind of thing I was trying to put forward to you last time is that thinking something becomes a way of being, ultimately, so that you continue to do it. Um, It becomes far easier, actually. Did you notice this? I think I mentioned this the other day. It becomes far easier once you've kind of transgressed in one particular direction, to keep on doing it. You know? First time it can be difficult. Second time, much, much easier. Third time, it's a doddle. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> really, really easy. <laughs> and that comes about because you know, how we incline our mind you know, is engaging our thinking, and it becomes eventually our way of being. So if we're constantly appropriating, even minutiae, little bits and pieces which are not offered, you know, in the big schema of things, perhaps it doesn't, but it's inclining the mind in a particularly unwholesome way, continuously. And I'm just going to run through them. I'm not going to spend a long time doing them, but I just really want you to kind of ponder the significance of them, of the precepts, you know. And I think actually the third precept is a really interesting one, because it's it's often totally mistranslated. You know, it's, I undertake a rule of training to refrain from sensual and sexual misconduct. Usually gets shortened just to the sexual bit, which says probably more about the West than it does about the actual precept. You know, it's about abuse of the senses as well, of which, of course, sexuality is a big one. can be. You know, but it's any way that we can abuse the senses... And you can think of the wonderful ways we've invented for ourselves in the West for abusing the senses yeah. on a day-to-day basis. <laughs> when I go to London, I'm always horrified by seeing everybody plugged in and never sort of looking at anybody. <laughs> and they're all plugged into their iPods and Walkmans and things like that. Um, and there's actually no eye contact. There's no connection. No connectedness at all. Um, the mind is literally being kind of blitzed out with you know, whatever they're listening to. It's a way of actually not being in this world. So actually, sensual misconduct, what would you, could, could you connect that with something I've already talked about in dependent origination? Yeah, it could be Vedana, but it could be something else. It could be one form of tanha, couldn't it? 
Vivalvat Hanha is a really good one, yeah? Overindulgence in things like cinema and television and music and that, where there's not, there's a desire not to be there, just kind of be absorbed in something. Um, in fact, it, I mean, I was always struck when I read the biography of the German, well, Austrian philosopher Wittgenstein, it said that he used to go down deliberately into the front row of a cinema so he wouldn't think. <laughs> So he'd be just totally absorbed into the screen itself. Now, in a sense, that's what we're doing. We're trying to just kind of absorb something to stop us from being here. Um, and so even the precepts themselves, because that can be harming living beings, because it's harming you, you know, as well. So sensual misconduct. You know, undertake a rule of training to refrain from false speech. Yeah, that's another one. And that can actually be... Um, gone into subcategories, like, you know, actually what right speech is defined by what it's not. It's not false speech, it's not harsh speech, it's not divisive speech, and it's not idle chatter. Is there anything left to say? <laughs> kings and queens, remember? You're not supposed to talk about kings and queens and... Yeah. Mm -hmm. Kings and queens, yeah. that's part of it as well, right? Yeah, yeah. Politics? Politics, that's right, it becomes idle chatter. Now it's it's very it's very interesting because uh, actually if you if you absor absorb that precept and actually think about it well false speech yes it does you know it's a usual translation not telling lies but you know, it makes you have to think about your speech doesn't it yeah. is that little tiny twist of the tail that you put into it to make it that little bit funnier is that false speech <laughs> a little bit of exaggeration. Yeah. Now, these are all things that we do. You know? um, we distort our speech in some ways. Yeah, and, and in doing that, and this is the question, this is why I'm saying they're questions, they're tools for ethical inquiry. Are we actually engaging in false speech? The moment you engage in divisive speech, as well, setting one person against another, well, that's politics. <laughs> you know? The moment you engage in harsh speech, it's speaking badly of others, something again that occurs very easily a lot of the time. Yeah. Is criticism, genuine criticism, harsh speech, or is it something else? Again, I'm posing it as a question. Yeah. Can truth be false speech? in the sense, or could it be harsh and divisive speech? Because, you know, we know that we can certainly use, and it goes right back to the first precept, truth to hurt another. You know, I'm telling it to you straight. <laughs> now, really, what you're saying, I've got you wiggling on the end of my pin here <laughs> with my truth about you. Um... Finally, of course, idle chatter. Well, idle chatter, and again, I'm posing it as a question, so I really want you to examine it rather than sort of present this as a fait accompli. Well, if you think about what an engine's doing when it's idling, what's it doing? Nothing. No, it's polluting. It's <laughs> <Yes>, okay. <laughs> it could be polluting, yeah, that's a good point. Um, but genuine, generally, I mean, when an engine is just, you know, you're kind of sitting in a traffic jam and it's idling, it's not going anywhere. 
It's just clunking over, really. Does the Buddha actually specifically mention idle chatter? Or it does, it? yeah. It always seems, if I'm honest, a bit of a killjoy, because <laughs> sometimes <laughs> contact, human contact, is one of the things that makes life worth living. But right? that's why it's a question. Uh-huh. Is it idle chatter? Because quite often there's a subtext of, yeah. I see you, I acknowledge you, I, that's right. you know. Yeah. So it's actually about, as I say, making you inquire into your speech. You know, so somebody comes along, and I you know, just take me back to my old days in the university posts, comes along to see me, they come on a journey, um, and I'm going to be interviewing them. And what I'm trying to do is put them at ease. So I ask them a lot of, you know, what was the journey like? You know, how, how was it? You know, where have you come from? These sorts of things could sound very much like idle chatter, but actually there's something else behind it, isn't there? He's trying to put you at your ease, someone at their ease. And an awful lot of human contact is exactly like that. It's trying to make somebody feel acknowledged, known, welcome, understood, all these sorts of things. So does that qualify as idle chatter? Perhaps not. But then there's an awful lot of chuntering. <laughs> Isn't there? Yeah, because there is also the right timing is mentioned. Hmm. Well, it's contextual, isn't it? I mean, this is what I'm saying. It's actually... You can choose when something has to be said or not. Yes. And, well, I'm going to kind of put in something else right at the end of it. Finally, of course, there is the, you know, so-called seeming prohibition, which is usually, you know, to... Under Here's the full version. I take a rule of train to refrain from taking intoxicants which cloud the mind. Now, I don't think it's because the Buddha is a prude <laughs> that he says this. I think it's a very, very good basic reason. It is actually, if you're engaging in taking any form of intoxicants, you're going actually against the tenor, in particular if you're practicing meditation, of what you're trying to do in meditation, which is the opposite, which is clarify the mind, you know, to clear it, to make it as perspicuous as possible, you know, what's actually going on. Uh, and when I joke about this, I sometimes have these on a list on the board when I write them up. I write the five precepts up and you put the one at the bottom. Why don't you engage in the last one? Because you're likely to commit all of the above. Is <laughs> 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 yeah. the translation literally intoxicant? Yeah, it is. And what, are the, what intoxicants were around the time of Buddha apart from alcohol? Well, there was alcohol, there were... were yeah, well, beetle, yeah, I mean, that's a classic one, but there's bung, which is, you know, the hashish. Opium, yeah. Been, I mean, so ever since human beings have been around, they've found drugs <laughs> of some sort. <laughs> you know, something that's going to um, really, again, kind of perhaps be linked to something like the Bawatanha, to stop you from thinking, to stop you know, the difficulties of being, being so present. Well, as I say, the Buddha isn't really approved. What he's really saying is actually you're trying to clarify the mind, to understand things, to live a more ethically wholesome life. However, if you do this, actually you're creating conditions for more confusion. Yeah. This is what you're doing. You're engaging in conditions for more confusion. So, again, it becomes inquiry about it, rather than a thou shalt. There's no, as we know in Buddhist thought, there's no being on high that's going to zap you if you infringe it. <laughs> There's nothing on high that's going to kind of um, criticise you or anything. 
So it has to be self-motivated, self-generated. I want to go back to one speech, silence. That's part of speech too. Silence is a huge part of speech. In fact, we have this phrase in English, don't we? Silence speaks a thousand words. Interesting, the Buddha uses it as a strategy in the texts. Sometimes when they're asking him philosophical, metaphysical type questions, rather than getting into a debate, he just remains silent about it. In other words, you know, once you enter into the ground, then you're into this kind of philosophical wrangling and tussling. Whereas actually if you remain silent about something, it can speak eloquently. Yeah. There's a <clears throat> very famous short, well, it's a short story, I forget exactly what it's called. It's by a German Nobel Prize winner called Heinrich Böll. Does anybody actually know his work? Mm. Um, and it's about about a sound engineer who works in a studio recording interviews. And one day what he does is he takes all of the interviews, cuts out all the speech and splices all the silences together. Because <laughs> <laughs> every silence has a different quality. <laughs> it says something different. Now, I think we almost implicitly understand that, don't we? Um, I mean, if again, we have you know, a pregnant silence, an awkward silence, a comfortable silence. We have all of these words, you know, these little phrases in English, which I think actually indicate this. That there are different modalities of silence that we can enter into. And of course, we have in Buddhism the Arya silence, the noble, or the ennobling silence, which is what we do on retreat as well, which makes us examine speech patterns and the tendency to want to verbalise everything that we hear, you know, everything that we feel. So when we look at the precepts, these are our basic guidelines for all ethical inquiry. And actually, they are going to be exposed through shunya, through understanding of emptiness. Now, I'm going to try and and join that. If I don't do it today, I'll do it on the next talk I give. I'm going to try and join what I've said about the precepts and ethicality in general to some of the things I've said about shunya so far, about emptiness. Often and all too often, I believe Rob spoke to you about shunya and love, emptiness and love, so he was telling me. Now, I think all too often, emptiness has seemed to be almost a sort of hyper, hyper category of wisdom. I'm deliberately using the translation I don't like. Because wisdom, um, in a sense, is kind of a knowing of something. Well, it's very, very clear, I think, even from the earliest text, when the Buddha starts speaking about compassion, when he starts talking about kindness, when he starts talking about love, he's talking about ways of knowing the world. These are ethical ways of knowing the world. They're almost like the eye with which we can bring. We can bring the eye of aggression, aversion, greed to the world, or we can come to the world with eyes that actually love what they see, have kindness, gentleness towards that which becomes exposed both in our own lives and viewing the lives of others. It's 
intrinsic to the Buddha's original teaching, so much so that kind of even just even on some of the more scholarly work I've done, I mean, I've looked at very much the way the Buddha actually makes these pathways to liberation in themselves. You know, he actually really, really puts compassion and love at the centre of his teaching. And it's very interesting if you just reflect, and I know some of you have probably done this, but if you reflect on the Metta Sutta and just some of the phrases in the Metta Sutta that you get, there is no better way to live in this world, I referring to Metta, Maitri, love. There is no one who develops this mindfulness. Again, I use the old translation, the one who develops this awareness. You, you, when you finish the retreat, have a look through your metasutta again. And finally, the final phrase is, one who practices in this way, no matter how you take this, but you know, it's up to you, one who practices in this way, i.e. with metta, with love, this mindfulness, this way of living in the world, will not be reborn again. Actually, the words say, will not come to lie in a womb again. Actually. Yeah. Now, all that's kind of passed the tradition by a little bit. Yeah, and their fixation on wisdom. <laughs> yeah. Wisdom is often elevated above these really fundamental human qualities. And actually with the eye of Shunya, with the yeah, eye that perceives the emptiness, well it's not nihilism, we've kind of been through that hopefully, It's not nihilism that we get out of it, but what we get is this wonderful world of interdependence. This absolutely astonishing world of beauty and interdependence. Everybody depending on everything else. Partly the reason why I wouldn't want to translate, again, something in Mahaparinibbana Sutta as being, being islands unto yourselves, but being lamps unto yourselves, illuminating yourselves. Ireland sounds all cut off, actually isolated from others. And what we get, both from the teachings, if you notice right, the way it's progressed, hopefully you've noticed, from the teachings of Anatta, what you've got is not a self, but processes which are all interdependent on one another. So actually even what we're doing in our malfunctioning a lot of the time is actually quite a beautiful process. Even when it's not coming up with the with the you know, the best way, optimal way of living in this world, we're actually seeing the beauty of this interconnectedness, this interdependence. Actually, is a word I'd much rather use. When we start looking at dependent origination, well, I mean, it speaks for itself, doesn't it? The word dependent origination: things are not coming into being in isolation. Everything is coming into being dependent on something else. Now, I'm sorry if I'm revisiting stuff we've been to again and again and again, but I'm just trying to put it into this context. When we start going into the more Mahayana phase of looking then specifically at emptiness, which has been implicit in all the other teachings as well, so much so that I've mentioned to you before that the teaching of emptiness is found in the Nikayas, not in the full form that the Gardener gives it, but it's in there implicitly and explicitly to a degree. When we start getting into Nagarjuna, Chandrakirti, all the other thinkers that follow um, 
after Nagarjuna. Then again we're starting not to look at something intellectual, wisdom, philosophical. We're looking at something that actually unveils interdependence. Yeah. When I understand the way things actually are, you know, this thing that the Buddha keeps on speaking about, you know, this is what categorizes awakening, is understanding the way things actually are and learning to love them as they actually are, as they are. Then we see this vast, vast universe of interdependence. And I think on the last time, I was either in one of the question and answer sessions or certainly in one of the talks I was mentioning, the fact, of course, that we think we're independent and we're not. Far from it. Yeah. How often do we reflect on that? On our complete interdependence on others for our existence? Because when we're, is when we're feeling, you know, in a particularly emotional state, we often feel cut off and isolated and, you know, um, you know, can live in a city and feel probably more isolated than living in the country. Yeah. I always remember a character in a, a film called The Thin Red Line when somebody said, do you ever feel lonely? And he said, only when I'm around other people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so you can feel massively, massively cut off, even in these vast conurbations in which still the majority of people inhabit. So, what do we get to? We get to a situation of beginning to understand through this kind of build-up and really examining in our practice, not just intellectually, intellectually is only a part of it, or sort of, certainly through the thought processes, we begin to build up a picture of interdependence yeah. and this wonderful universe of interdependence that we inhabit and we're just like a little node in that vast universe of interdependence. Yet that's not enough in a way, is it? Then there's what arises out of it, which is if we are interdependent then we're somehow all in the boat together. Yeah. This is comes to the radical idea of, then if that is the case, then we all should be helping each other. And we can only do that if we generate goodwill. Now, if you like, metta is the foundation of that, the generation of goodwill. It's the foundation of our ethics. In fact, you know, and we can talk about it, you know, as, as meta as being the soil out of which compassion grows, watered with joy, in the cool shade, as one particular author puts it, of equanimity. Yeah. You know, you recognise this. From, you know, we did it in the in the summer, didn't we? Mm -hmm. yeah. Watered in the cool shade of equanimity. So these are the two fundamental qualities that we're really, really talking about. Now, to really, again, come back to the precepts for a second, if we're talking about the precepts, to really engage with those precepts is to open up a world of possibility for the possibility of kindness. Yeah. Because, actually, if you look at the Eightfold Path, then how is right action defined? 
Uh, right action is defined, well, for example, it's, well, it's that which is not based on wrong speech. <laughs> so it's always defined negatively, and it goes to those other factors as well. But you just take that as being one of the parts of the precepts. So we have to actively engage because actually we are engaged with others. Every situation we find ourselves in is not solid, it's, but it's an ethical situation. Yeah. Every situation, even if I abstract myself from society, extract or abstract myself from society, I'm still engaged in an ethical situation. Yeah. We cannot avoid it. I mean, the actual origin of the word ethics is derived from the Greek ethos, which means to dwell, to live in a particular way. Um, so we're actually always living in a particular way, and this is a demonstration of our ethics, if you like, in the world. Now, the ethics that's opened up through understanding of emptiness is an ethics which isn't simply prescriptive. It's about valuing. It's an ethics of value. Valuing others. As Chandrakirti says, uh, uh, sorry, as Shantideva says, in the Bodhicara Avatara, the guide to the Bodhisattva's way of life. You know, it makes, and I gave him this quote before, it makes no sense to talk about my pain or your pain. It only makes sense to talk about pain, dukkha. Yeah. And how we can support and help each other in the overcoming of dukkha in this world rather than the reinforcement of it, which so often can happen. So we can either work together and see our radical need for each other, or we can work in trying to, as we so do, isolate ourselves others from others in unethical behaviour, in a modality which moves us away from other people, and as a consequence of that, create dukkha for ourselves and create dukkha for others as well. So, when we start talking about shunya, then we're talking about something which is deeply, deeply ethical in its implications here. Because it's what we see that comes out of it. It's not just some kind of personal little bit of wisdom that I'm attaining here. It's actually changing your whole relationship to what is. That's how profound it is. I mean, if it really does enter your view in the sense of being the right view about things, and if it really enters that view, then it changes our world. Yeah. Now, all too often, as I say, Shunya can get interpreted as being a sort of almost intellectual, philosophical category even mistakenly seen as, oh, the world doesn't exist, but Shunya does. <laughs> you know, that's the very worst, because that's turning it into an absolute, which it's not. It's actually to take away the sense of solidity. Remember all these words that I've used before, and probably Rob has used as well, to give us a sense of the spaciousness of the world. Yeah. A spaciousness of our situ in the situations that we find ourselves in. Well, if the spaciousness is possibility as well, different possibilities for behaviour, 
rather than, I don't know, obsessive-compulsive behaviour, which is what we normally engage. I mean, I do think, well, from the point of view of the Buddha, everybody's got OCD. <laughs> you know, we're compulsively repeating the same stuff. And ADD. And ADD, yes. <laughs> okay. Yes, I mean... But that's what's actually happening. We're, if you like, remember that thing I said about samsara, one vast bad habit. We keep doing it again and again and again. Yeah. And that bad habit is almost, I feel, compelled to do it. You're this way, I'm that way. There is a compulsion for me to behave with you because this is the way I am. Have you ever used that phrase about yourself? Even just thought it. Yeah. Yeah, because that actually is a wonderful statement, isn't it, of solidity. This is the way I am. <laughs> that actually says, no negotiation possible. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. This being ain't changing. <laughs> so actually it cuts off possibility, doesn't it? For the moment that comes crashing in. So what the, well, I'm using metaphors here, obviously, but what the eye of Shunya palpates is a sense of greater possibility, of greater spaciousness, of not being compelled to engage in the unwholesome. If there is no real sense of solidity and we're beginning to open ourselves up to an understanding of interdependence and process, the world is a vast process. The universe is a vast process. We're a kind of, if you want to see it this way, we're almost a, ma a microcosm of that process. Yeah. So there's nothing within us. No substantial, you know, if you use this language that's there, there's no substantial existence which can be an unchanging existence which is buried deep within you. Yeah. It's an idea you have of yourself. It's an idea that you have of others as well. Remember I gave you that example of the good person and the bad person. The good person, supposedly who you think is the good person, who does a good act, followed by a whole range of bad acts. And it takes you a long time to cotton on. This person is as good as you thought they were. Or the bad, so-called bad person, who engages in... One bad act, followed by a lot of good acts. Now, with both, you can see, what, what I'm really talking about is the way that we fix. And here's the greatest fix of all, which I see still in popular press and everything. Evil. Yeah. Evil is um, something we believe to be within the person. So we don't, when we say somebody is evil, it's kind of that is in their intrinsic nature. That's the way we see it. And that actually says there's no possibility of change again of that person. Hence the reason why Buddhist, um, throughout the traditions in Buddhism, you find stories of wrongdoers who actually make the grade at some point. Yeah. Angulimala's got to be the classic first serial killer. <laughs> but even he makes the grade eventually. For those who don't know the story, Angulimala is this character who goes around killing people to collect fingers. Yeah. And Anguli is an actual finger, and Amala is a rosary. So he's making a rosary out of fingers for some probably weird practice that was going on in India at that time. Yeah. 
Um, but the stories there are meant to be actually doesn't matter how you think a person is, they are still capable of change. That does not mean, of course, it negates what they've done before. You know, it's even spoken about in the commentaries that Angulamala continues to get spat at and abused by people, even when he's an arahant. And, that, and that's because of his previous karma. Yeah. That's because of the previous actions he's engaged in. And you would expect that. It doesn't kind of nullify everything suddenly. Yeah. Is that because they recognised him? Pardon? Is that because people recognise Probably, him? yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I can imagine Indian society at that time as being pretty small, you know, village-based societies. <laughs> you know, they certainly would have known of him, That's what, even if they didn't know him. Now, it's interesting, this whole notion of you know, good and evil, because these are categories, and they're ethical categories, that we, you know, or the mind naturally gravitates in thinking of you know, the goodness in the world or the evilness in the world, and, and see them as fixed things. Something which is, you know, somebody's intrinsically got or they haven't. You know, the goodness or the badness, the evil or the not evil. Um, and what the whole notion of understanding that's arising out of what we've been examining over these last few weeks is that, that there is nothing fixed there. There really is nothing fixed. This being with this process can end up being good or it can end up being bad. End up being skillful or unskillful, wholesome or unwholesome. Often circumstances and situations, again, cause dependent arisings. You know? not, to, not to kind of excuse people's behaviour, but actually when you hear about a lot of these cases of people who do horrific things, there is a story. And it's often a story of abuse as well when you begin to look at it and examine it. Now I'm saying this is not to excuse, it's to understand how something arises. So somebody doesn't arise evil. Somehow there are dependencies which cause this. There are causes and conditions. Isn't there some idea of, is it called bija, some sort of seeds and a liar? That's, we're going to get onto that, that's Chittamatra. Okay. Yeah, that's Chittamatra. Um, and that's another story. Uh, so, so we can perhaps even bring that up in a question and answer or I'll give a short talk on it. But there is nothing which is fixed in this particular way of looking at things. There is nothing that's fixed. So, actually, that's the good news, <laughs> isn't it? Because it means no matter how intractable you think your problems are, you know, I'm sure we all have a kind of general view about what our problems are in the world, um, they are not intractable. You know, they might be stuck. They might be... Yeah, kind of static at this stage, but it doesn't mean they are irremovable. Yeah. Change will occur no matter what, you know, whether I instigate it or not. You know. But unfortunately, of course, if I don't come to it with a sense of ethicality, then often the change is going to be you know, down the unwholesome route again. So the change is always possible. Change will occur anyway. It's how you guide the change. How you make it go in the direction of the wholesome. 
It's also very interesting that when we start talking about this particularly emotive category, as I say, which I still see banded around on popular press on occasion, and sometimes even on, on the television, uh, of evilness, that evilness seems, um, again, on an Abhidhamma perspective of this, to be, something, uh, to be the absence of something rather than the presence of something. It's the absence of self-respect and respect for others. Yeah. Imagine that, if you actually take away those two. So in other words, if you take away a sense of self-respect, you take away any sense of conscience. Yeah. I, there's no sense of conscience about what I do. It's one of the defining characters often of psychopaths. Actually, there's no sense of conscience about it. And that naturally gravitates towards, obviously, a lack of respect for others, because actually if there's no self-respect, no respect for oneself in, in what you do, then there can it's going to come out as action which is a lack of respect for others, you know, and actually lead to horrific consequences. And I was very struck when, years and years ago, I was reading uh, Hannah Arendt, I don't know if you know this um, author, she was a philosopher, German philosopher, Hannah Arendt talking about Eichmann, um, and she ran a series of, well, she did a series of articles in the New York Times, um, which she actually collected into a book um, based on his trial in Jerusalem. It's called The Banality of Evil, and that title tells all, tells all. because what she describes when she encounters Eichmann, as probably most of you know, Eichmann was responsible for the transportation of the Jews to the, to the death camps throughout Europe um, in the 40s, that she was encountered not what by what she called the monstrousness of evil, but the banality of evil, that there was this absence within in him of a, an ability to think about others at all. That's cut-offness. That's isolation. Yeah. It's the very, in a sense, the very epitome of the unethical. So actually if we're talking about the ethical, then we're talking always about connectedness. Yeah. About not wanting to hurt others because of an understanding of our connectedness. Not actually, if you want to take it in the bigger field, not actually wanting to hurt, or to let's put it this way perhaps, to minimise the damage that I do in this world both to the environment and to others in this world. That's ethicality. Now that is what's coming out of seeing things as being empty, but connected, interdependent. So in many ways, I mean, although Buddhism doesn't talk about it, because it has no sense, because it wasn't really a problem in the time of the Buddha or for those afterwards. It's actually a sort of proto-ecological view you know, that in caring for others, we care for ourselves. In caring for self, I care for others. Yeah, this movement, it's two-way. It's not self over others or others over self. It's a genuine interconnectedness. And that is where lies, or you know, perhaps interdependence is a better word, that is in where lies the genuinely ethical, in that real felt sense. I'm not talking about intellectual that felt sense of our interdependence.
Just like as a small community sitting in this room, doing things together, engaging together, right that worldwide, that's what's going on. And in that respect for others, you try to actually move your behavior in a way that becomes less and less disrespectful and more and more respectful. And this does not mean you have to like everybody in the world. It has nothing to do with that at all. But it's a sense of a genuine respectfulness that arises through a foundation of kindness because of this interdependence with others. Now, I think because we live in such huge communities often that, uh, well, if you ever know Jean-Paul Sartre's famous play, you know, No Exit, um, it's where he defines hell as being other people. <laughs> his, his vision of hell was four people trapped in a room <laughs> that couldn't get out, engaged in an endless conversation. <laughs> so that's his view of hell. Uh, actually, I think, you know, existentially, for many people, that's actually the way it sees, particularly in big conurbations and big cities. They, they couldn't communicate, could they, for some reason? Weren't they also trapped, rather like we talk about Eichmann, and inside themselves oh, yeah. somehow? That's I mean, right. That's, yeah. yeah, that's right. Uh, they're all entrapped by both themselves and being trapped together. Yeah. So it's that sense of is- existential isolation that's there that we often feel that can lead to, well, of course, self-regard. Not self-respect, but self-regard, ego grasping. What about self-righteousness? Oh, get bundles of that. <laughs> I mean, self-righteousness is written into the equation. Yeah. And that's literally, I am right. Now, that goes back, of course, to again to some of the talks we've had previously, to that sense of conceit. Remember? I am better than. Well, that's, I know what's right. I know what's good for you. <laughs> that's all self-regard. This is, you know, the I am is centred right there in that. Now, this is actually a, a respectful conversation that we're engaged in, with no solidity, no absolutes, no actual, just like those precepts that I spoke about right at the beginning, no definitive rights and wrongs in them. Because as you can see, actually, again, let's take take the right speech one, to refrain, um, undertake a rule of training to refrain from false speech. Well, I can think of ethical situations that might require false speech. Yeah. You can imagine living under a totalitarian regime. You know, If you have the rule, I always tell the truth, you know, are you sheltering any dissidents in your house? Oh, yes, they're upstairs in the back bedroom. <laughs> now, I'm kind of making a very silly thing here, but as you can see, that turns into its opposite. It turns into the unethical. So what I want to give you a picture of is, I suppose, I don't want to use the word difficulty, the challenge of living ethically. Because everything is contextual, everything is spacious, everything is open, and actually the ethical can change into the unethical just like that, just at the click of a finger. 
Now there might be a right moment and then it suddenly becomes a wrong moment for something to be said or something to be done at that moment. So why do we have to remain aware and mindful? Because of that very reason. Also it's intention, not just behaviour. It's intention, yeah. Yeah. It's intention plus context. Yeah. And the situation that we find ourselves in. There's a whole kind of raft of things that come in to ethical behaviour. Now, I've given kind of some foundations for it. Well, that, A, there has to be in sense, in fact, I'm not going to go into it because it takes too long, but you know, from the point of view of healthy mental factors to be present, there has to be self-respect there. That I have a conscience about what I do. At least I want to get it right, and I won't feel good about myself if I don't at least have a stab at trying to get it right. That's just a basic element. There has to be respect for others. I don't go out deliberately trying to hurt. I might do it inadvertently, as we all do in life, but I don't go out deliberately trying to hurt others and upset others and you know, engage in bad behaviour because um, you know, I don't actually really care about anybody else except myself. You know, so those are, kind of, those are two primary mental factors that actually arise with, every wholesome mental, you know, with other wholesome mental factors as again. You know, when mindfulness clicks in, we often get those as well. Well, not often, we always get them. So we get those arising. So remaining mindful, remaining aware is what it's about. And what we do is we're not kind of discovering or palpating the, the emptiness of the situation as another category. It's see, rather seeing the spaciousness that we see within that. In other words, I don't project something into it that's not there. I'm responding to it as it is. Now what often happens, and again, you'll see this in the opening paragraph of the Dhammapada, you know, mind is the forerunner of all things. Well, that's the case. Most of the time we've made up our minds before we've ever done anything. Yeah. I've made up my mind already before getting into a situation about the rightness or wrongness that's to be enacted here. Or... Here's one to catch yourself out with. How often have you tried to answer the questions of somebody before, you, before they've finished telling you the problem? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We don't actually let the other manifest, firstly, and to see the situation as it is before we've kind of already kicked into problem-solving situation, into problem-solving mode. Yeah. So there's no spaciousness there. We've already brought our stuff to the table. There. So actually, where does unethics, unethical behaviour arise from? I could actually put this under a brief phrase because unethical behaviour arises because it's all about me. Self. Yes. Yeah, actually, I make a good title for a book, All About Me. Be a <laughs> in other words, you buy multiple copies. <laughs> so, so the all about me is when we are already projecting ourselves into the situation. We're not letting ourselves enter the situation, enter the context. We don't find spaciousness there, because when we come with our stuff, it's already closed. Mm. Yeah. So to engage in genuine ethical behaviour, 
means actually to do something that I think is very difficult for most of us to do, is to keep the question open about what to do. Now, guidelines are there, and that's why they're rules of training, to help you kind of feel your way around the situation. At the very worst, you can use them as, well, at least I know I'm not going to go there. But they're more than that. They're there to help you to explore, help you to... Well, actually, I actually use a phrase which is their can openers to actually open up that situation. So when I talk about refraining from false speech, harsh speech, divisive speech, idle chatter, well, how is that occurring in this moment? What is happening in this moment? Where is harm being enacted, if at all, in this moment? Now, this all makes it sound very terribly cognitive, but what we're, in a sense, doing is training ourselves to have this way of seeing things. Mm-hmm. To actually feel that spaciousness, that openness, the possibility within given, any given situation that we find ourselves in. Now, that means being open to the other, open to your own possibilities. rather than seeing the other as something, and me as another something, kind of bumping up against each other. So that we actually bring to the table ourselves, not our agendas. This is what we're doing, always bringing ourselves as an open possibility to that situation, which is also an open possibility. Now, it all sounds, as I say, terribly cognitive, and it isn't. It's really a training, a training towards the spontaneity of ethics. This is what we're engaging in. Some of that will be behavioural, some of it will be done on the cushion, some of it will be done initially analytically looking at any situation, applying the precepts, or at least using them to, as I say, open up what's going on in that situation. So when we start to talk about shunya, it's not, as I say, just an intellectual, distanced way, a piece of wisdom that we're going to engage in. It's actually changing our whole relationship ethically to what is, and particularly to interrelationship. To see another as an open set of possibilities and to see ourselves actually changes the world. Even if I don't like that person's behaviour, at least it can bring respect in that situation, to see ways of possibly caring for the other, being kinder to them, rather than bringing a fixed response. Now that's, if you like, again, the substantiality, fixed responses. Seeing the other as an unchanging entity. Seeing ourselves as an unchanging entity. 
actually it's usually the bumping up together, or the, at least thinking of it, of two sets of unchanging entities that causes violence and conflict. Um, there's a wonderful word that's usually for that conflict. It's called ideologies, the bumping together of them. Yeah. Yeah, when we get the clash of ideologies, and then we often get conflict and violence arising. Yeah. So it's actually exploding the sense when you really begin to view things in this way of ideology of absolutes, of actually thinking you know something. <laughs> it's a trouble, isn't it? I mean, this is almost Socratic. I mean, there's a wonderful thing about Socrates, and some of you probably might know in Greece. He was, <coughs> he was often referred to as the wisest man in Greece, and this perplexed him. And he said, I suppose the only reason I must be the wisest man is because I'm the only person that knows that they know nothing. <laughs> Everybody else thinks they know something. <laughs> now I think in that sense that's what we're, we're doing actually what we're bringing is an unknowing to us, our lives you know, actually that's very exciting I don't know if you ever feel that it's a very exciting way of being that I'm not the possessor of a truth I'm not, you're not the possessor of the truth you know, there is not an absolute wisdom here but there are a whole range of possibilities of being in this world that might create kindness, compassion, caring, and gentler ways of being in this world. But the moment I think I know something, and that's what Nagarjuna was all about. Remember, I said in a simple way, his philosophy was a philosophy of shut up. <laughs> Stop thinking. Start actually looking, engaging in practice. Because when we start to do that, when we start to drop away the mind in the way that the mind thinks it knows something, and start to see much more, perhaps we will then know how to act. Rather than thinking that we know how to act. Thinking we know how to deal with any situation. So actually if I was going to say anything, it's actually also training in seeing also training in hearing, a training in tasting, a training in touching. And that's why I like the Pasar quote, you know, to, to think is to have eyes that are not very well. <laughs> we don't use them properly. When thought creeps in the way, in particular in philosophy, ideology, doctrine, knowing right, knowing wrong, that's when we get trouble. You know, both for ourselves and both for others as well. Because actually, mostly what we're bringing in the sense of our knowing is not knowing. It's not knowing at all. There's usually a mismatch because usually buried deep in that sense of knowing is it ain't going to change. It's happiness. And it's self. <laughs> Rather than those three opposites, the characteristics, of course, which in a way we, we started off exploring and has led us down this route to now. I think I'm going to shut up now. <laughs> so it's over to you if you've got any questions or comments. I don't have any questions. Yeah. Right at the beginning when we talked about the precepts, um, the, um, the wording 
About not killing anything at all. About, yeah, I mean, absolutely, you know, really taking. You know. Well, remember, it was always a middle way, and it was a middle way between the Brahmanism that he observed and the Jainism. Yes. Well, Ma, uh, the Nagantas are, or, yeah, um, the are the Jains, and they're mentioned continuously throughout the Pali tradition. Probably he was either a contemporary, Mahavira is probably a contemporary of the Buddha or slightly earlier mm. than the Buddha. Now their absolute injunction on non-killing led to lives that were almost impossible to lead. Yeah. So what the Buddha was talking about was minimising harm. That's what he actually speaks about. Minimising the harm that you do in this world rather than complete, utter abstention. Because, you know, in other words, you really do are wearing a face mask to stop yourself breathing any insects and looking constantly floor in case you tread on anything, which is actually the extreme behaviour that giants even you know, still to this day behave, you know, um, do, in, engage in, I should say, in India. And then there were the Brahmins, um, probably at the time of the Buddha, uh, were engaged in animal sacrifice. Yeah, around their three fires. <laughs> so they had nice three fires of greed, aversion and delusion and they were throwing their animals onto it, having sacrificed them. <laughs> yeah, so his was that middle way. And remember there is no, within, even within the Vinaya, there's no injunction to be vegetarian within it. Um, you know, because actually you're living basically subsistence life. You are dependent on others for arms, and so if that's all they have to offer, then you eat it. There's, you probably know the one exception. I mean, the one exception is if you suspect or know that the animal is being killed for you, then you can refuse to eat it. But you know, it's, it's about minimising harm rather than... I mean, the Tibetans got into real problems, actually, historically in Tibet, about this. I mean, their butchers were, of course, all Muslims. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I mean, I, I can't, yeah, I just always, I have still struggle tremendously with that. It's like, you know, if, if, um, if you steal something and I, and I receive those goods from you, and they're stolen, mm. the karma is sort of equally mm. bad. Distributed, yeah. But, um, but if, if you kill an animal and then I eat the meat, it's okay. Well, I think, I mean, in fairness, let's say, I mean, not all Tibet, but in certain parts of Tibet, they're living in a very harsh environment. They're trying to justify mm. having to eat what they have to eat um, in a Buddhist way. That just leads to a certain degree of hypocrisy, unfortunately. Yeah, but that's what actually, that's what actually the truth of the situation. But unfortunately, of course, not all Tibet was like central Tibet. Which, I mean, if you think of some of the southern areas of Tibet, they're right on the borders of Burma. So it's actually plentiful food there. But central Tibet, I mean, very little grew. Yeah, so it was meat or nothing. Um. 
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.